Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. This Saturday night, make sure that you walk on over to Walters for UFC 275 as Glover Teixeira will defend his UFC light heavyweight championship for the first time. Walters is also the best spot in Navy Yard to watch the NBA Finals. Tip at 9 p.m. this Friday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 0-2. Swing a pop-up. Shallow right down the line. Could be trouble, and it is fair. Chisholm rounding third, coming home. Soto's throw to the plate. The tag by Ruiz is not in time. No, he's out. He missed the plate. He missed the plate. And Chisholm is arguing that he touched the plate. Now, the Marlins do not have a challenge, but they can ask for a crew chief review. For the violation of the blocking of the plate rule. So Ruiz has called for illegally blocking the plate. The 1-1. Shot up the middle. Hits the second base bag. Goes into center field. Astadio coming home. Robles' throw is not in time and offline. And the Marlins win. Hernandez was there to field it. The ball hit the second base bag and takes a horrible bounce for the Nationals. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, June 9th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Lone Depot Park in Miami. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. You don't always label a low-scoring game as a wild game, but the last few innings on Wednesday night for the Nats ended up being wild. Uh, They also ended up coming in a loss, a 2-1-10 inning loss at the Miami Marlins in Game 2 of a three-game series. That's this season now 21 and 37. The game was scoreless through nine innings. Uh, the Nats scored a run in the top of the 10th, then came the bottom of the 10th, uh, during which things got weird. Uh, we'll get into that momentarily. Josiah Gray on Wednesday night was good. The Nats offense against Sandy Alcantara was not good. And the Nats will turn to someone named Steven Strasburg to try to avoid being swept at the Marlins. That's the job of an ace, right? To stop the losing. We'll see if Strasburg from the get-go here can be an ace and stop the losing for the Nats. Why do I have the feeling, Al, that we're going to be talking about that more than once over the rest of the season? The Nationals needing Steven Strasburg to put an end to a losing streak. I don't think this is going to be the first time. Unfortunately, that's the case. But hey, the fact that they even have the ability to turn to him to do that is great. For as rough as the first two plus months of the season has been, there's as much anticipation for Thursday's game as really any other game that we've seen so far this year. 
It's exciting. And, you know, like we talked about on the last installment of the podcast, who knows what will happen. It's only one game. So much more could happen and starts beyond this first one. But there's only one first one for Strasburg in this comeback like this. So we're going to have a lot to discuss on the next installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. But for this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, we do have plenty to get into. So with what happened in the bottom of the 10th on Wednesday night, Tanner Rainey allowed two runs, one earned. He got just one out. Uh, He gave up a pinch one-out RBI opposite field single to Williams Astudillo to right field to score the Marlins automatic runner Jazz Chisholm Jr., who initially was ruled out. Then replay review determined that Kbert Ruiz had been blocking home plate. More on that momentarily. So that tied the game at one. And then Rainey gave up a one-out walk-off RBI single up the middle to Jesus Aguilar, for the 2-1 Nats loss. And on that play, the ball went off second base, ricocheted off the bag, went by Nats second baseman Cesar Hernandez. So some uh, bad puck luck for the Nats on the walk-off single. But with the run that was scored by Chisholm, so everyone watching the game thought that this was about Chisholm having not touched home plate and then it being ruled that he did touch home plate. And it did look upon replay review that he did touch home plate. You found out, though, after the game that that wasn't even what was being reviewed. This was crazy. So inside the ballpark, we could barely hear Ted Barrett's announcement. And, you know, (laughs) you're in a very hollow, empty, domed stadium here uh, where the acoustics are terrible. So you can't really hear what he's saying, but you see him motion safe. And so you're saying, okay, well, they've determined that he did touch the plate after all. And it was, I mean, it was close was really close. And I, I felt like this was one of those, if they called him safe initially, they're going to have to uphold that call. If they don't, is there actually enough there to overturn the call? And I thought it was 50-50 whether they did or did not. But we just assumed that's what it was. And it wasn't until after the game is over, after we go into the uh, clubhouse, after Davey Martini has finished doing his post-game session with us, as we're walking out, he tells us, oh, by the way, you know, the call there was that Kbert was blocking the plate. And we said, what? We had no idea. And he said, yeah, that's what they actually called on him. Now, Kbert himself said he didn't realize any of this until the final call was made. The frustrating part for me as a reporter is I would love to have a better idea of the process of how that worked. Because it sounds like based on what some of the Miami writers were saying afterwards too, is that the Marlins weren't entirely sure. I don't think they asked for that to be reviewed. I think What happens is on a play at the plate like that in extra innings, it goes to New York and they review automatically for the blocking of the plate, even if they weren't looking for the hand touching the plate or not. I would love to have had the opportunity to ask the umpires and get clarification on that. I can't, as we sit here right now, tell you for certain how it was that they came to that conclusion, except to say the couple times I've watched it again real quickly. That's a borderline call if you're going to call him for blocking the plate. You've seen it call on some pretty obvious ones. This to me did not look that obvious. Now, maybe it didn't matter. Maybe he touched the plate anyways. And, you know, this is all just crying over spilt milk doesn't matter. But for that to actually be the call, I thought that was a little bit nickel and dime to call him on that. Well, I think what's disappointing too is the whole point about miking up the umps and having them do as NFL officials do is to avoid exactly what ended up happening on Wednesday night. This mass confusion where not only do fans not know what's going on, but you guys covering the game didn't know what's going on. And K. Bear Ruiz didn't know what was being reviewed. Like, 
That, to me, is really whacked out that a guy involved in the play, in fact, the guy whose actions in the play ended up being reviewed, didn't know what was going on. Like, the whole purpose of micing up the umps is to avoid precisely what ended up happening here in this circumstance on Wednesday night. So that is strange. You know, it's unfortunate that the Nats ended up losing this game like they did. I mean, you know, we say all the time wins and losses don't matter for the Nats this season, and they don't. But still, like in the moment, you're watching this game. This was a winnable game. The bullpen was doing well. And then Rainey, you know, like, look, did he get wrecked in that inning? No. But, you know, it's disappointing to see him not be able to shut down the Marlins off the Nats getting that run in the top of the 10th inning. I know Rainey only gave up a couple of singles. I know that Davey after the game said that Rainey threw the ball well. But, you know, that does go into the department of disappointing outings for Tanner Rainey this season. Yeah, it does. But I kind of tend to side with Davey a little bit on this one. You're talking about a blooper down the right field line on an 0-2 pitch that left Astudillo's bat at 70.1 miles an hour and just found the right spot there behind first base. And then you're talking about a ground ball up the middle, 95 miles an hour off the bat. So, you know, fairly well struck. But it looked to me watching it live like Cesar Hernandez is going to pick up the ball and get the second out of the inning, and the winning run is going to be stuck at third base, and they're going to at least get a chance to face one more hitter. And instead, the ball bounces off the base and gets away. So are we going to blame Rainey for that? I have a little hard time doing that, except to say that as a closer, as any late inning reliever, your best weapon should be the ability to miss bats and to get strikeouts, especially in an extra inning situation where there's an automatic runner on base. You let them put the ball in play, you're putting these other things into chance. You're opening the door for something like that to happen. And when you look at the ninth inning with the game on the line in a similar situation, Kyle Finnegan made them miss bats and got a huge strikeout to get out of that one. And in the 10th, Tanner Rainey ultimately was hoping to rely on weak contact, I guess, as opposed to swings and misses. So that part's a little bit annoying. And and you would say that ideally he should be getting outs on his own, not having to rely on a batted ball being turned into an out. But, you know, he's had some bad blown saves this year. I don't put that in the same category. This, you know, was a lot of fluky stuff that all happened to come together at the right moment to end up costing them the game. Yeah, it was. I I just, I I don't know, maybe I'm holding him up to a too high of a standard. But like you just said with the strikeouts, Rainey's a strikeout pitcher. This was a night on which Josiah Gray had six strikeouts in five innings. It's not like the Marlins are seeing Rainey for a third time or anything like that. You know, you really would like him to just come in, throw gas, blow these guys away and end the game. And instead, he's given up contact. And, you know, that's going to happen. I understand that. Nats end up losing 2-1 in 10 innings. Now, you know, you mentioned Kyle Finnegan. Truth be told, the Nats could have lost this game in that bottom of the ninth inning. Kyle Finnegan tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth to preserve a scoreless tie, but he, in that inning, gave up a leadoff first pitch single to John Birdie, then issued a four-pitch walk of Miguel Rojas, and somehow Finnegan ended up tossing a scoreless ninth. A big reason for that was a terrific defensive play by Nats first baseman Josh Bell. Now the pitch, he squares the bunt, bunts it hard toward Bell at first. He has a play at third. The throw there is in time for the out. They get the force play. Bell with a good throw to Adrianza. With the game scoreless, nobody out. Marlins have runners on first and second. Bell fields a bunt by Jacob Stallings and then fires the ball 
to A. Ray Adrianza, who was the Nats starting third baseman on Wednesday night, and the Nats get the force out. The Nats get the lead runner out. That was a really good throw by Josh Bell, who is not necessarily known for his throwing, but that was a really good throw. And then later in the inning, Finnegan struck out Jazz Chisholm Jr., who of course torched the Nats in game one of this series. Finnegan got Chisholm swinging on five pitches for the third out. So, you know, we just talked about Rainey giving up some contact. Finnegan put a couple of guys on base, but ends up putting up a zero in that inning and Bell with the great play and then Finnegan with the key strikeout. So there's an alternate universe out there where maybe both these teams are in contention and maybe the outcome's a little bit different. And we're saying, man, what an exciting game this was. High drama between Sandy Alcantara tossing nine scoreless, Josiah Gray fighting his way through five scoreless, the Nats bullpen finding a way to get through it. And I thought the bottom of the ninth was going to be the, the peak of it all in how they got out of that jam because of the two things you just mentioned. The Josh Bell throw, look, watching it live, I cringed as soon as I saw him try to make the throw, both because you worry about him throwing it offline and maybe the runner comes around to score, but I also thought there wasn't enough time to get him. I mean, it was bang, bang. To his credit, he made a perfect throw. That is a play they work on. You don't see it happen very often, a 3-5 fielder's choice like that. But he was right on top of it. He made a perfect throw, and it looked like that was going to save them the game there for a while. So credit to him for doing that, and credit to Finnegan. And I feel like we've mentioned this you know, four or five times already this year of Kyle Finnegan getting a big strikeout against a big-time hitter late in a game. And I know he's had a few other blowups, and, and the overall numbers maybe aren't dominant, but I've been awfully impressed with how he has come up in some big spots. Remember the games in Anaheim, getting the middle of their lineup out. And right now, Jazz Chisholm is as tough a hitter, certainly as the Marlins have. And we talked about him the other night, how good he is. For him to come in there and throw gas and blow him away and strand the winning run on third base in that spot, I thought was huge for Finnegan. It ends up all for naught, but there were a lot of good things throughout the game, but especially in that bottom of the ninth inning, I thought from the Nats standpoint. Yeah, Finnegan, Steve Ciszek, and Carl Edwards Jr. ended up combining for four scoreless innings in this game. And how about Carl Edwards Jr. now? He on Wednesday night won in a third scoreless innings, two strikeouts. He now has appeared in 14 games for the Nats, 16 and a third innings, 16 strikeouts, ERA of 165. This sounds nuts because he was at AAA not that long ago, but He's emerging as a potential trade chip here for the Nats with the job that he's doing. I mean, he's a veteran pitcher. He has experience pitching for good teams in big seasons and in big spots. But man, he has been really good for the Nationals over these last few weeks. So remember, he gave up three runs in his first outing. It cost them a game and he vowed afterwards, I'm not going to let that happen again. He has not let it happen again. 13 consecutive scoreless appearances for him. He is number three on the depth chart among the A bullpen right now. Rainey, Finnegan, and Edwards is next on that list. He also had a big strikeout of Chisholm to get out of the seventh inning. This has been valuable because they don't really have a reliable lefty in the bullpen. He's the guy that Davey turns to when they need to get a big lefty out like Chisholm because of the cutters that he throws in on their hands. He's got the big curveball as well. Can he keep it up? We'll see. But this looks like the Carl Edwards Jr. who was a force for the Cubs several years back when Davey Martinez was their bench coach. Can he keep it going to the point that they actually could get something for him in trade? We'll see. But in the meantime, they're going to take advantage of everything he gives them because he is giving them a chance to win close games with this performance. 
Yeah, and I would say this, with a guy like Edwards, an older guy on a nice run, as soon as you start getting good offers, pull the trigger. Like you don't have to wait till August 2nd to deal him. You know, if 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 over the next few weeks teams start calling and a team needs bullpen help, I mean, there's nothing saying that you can't trade the guy now. You know, it doesn't have to be right at the deadline coming up uh, in a little less than two months here. But yeah, Edwards been really good here uh, for the Nats. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It feels like everything is going up these days, including home prices. And so there's no better time to have the look of your home go up and the value of your home go up with new windows from Window Nation. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. Take advantage of this offer. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. It's getting hot outside. Weather impacts your windows. Hot days can cause a caulk to crack, seal failures, and condensation. Window Nation only uses top-of-the-line materials, including mold spray and quad max sealant. Window Nation is the best. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask for the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Now the 2-2. Strike three called. Ring him up with a curveball. Rojas not happy. 
with home plate umpire Nestor Sehop. So Gray gets his sixth strikeout. That's his first called strike three. Josiah Gray, he was good for a third consecutive start. Now, you know, we're still waiting for Josiah Gray to take that next step and work deeper into a game. He only ended up going for five innings on Wednesday night, but the five innings were five scoreless innings, and he had six strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, He did give up six hits, but they were all singles. He did see a number of his pitches get fouled off, and so he ended up throwing 101 pitches over five innings, which is not something you see often, 100-plus pitches in five innings, but he threw 69 strikes versus 32 balls. So, you know, really, like with the exception of giving up all those fouled-off pitches, he actually did a really good job in this game. Uh, You had a scoreless bottom of the first from Josiah Gray, and that happened despite the Marlins having the bases loaded and one out. Uh, Three consecutive Marlins reached base via two straight one-out singles and then catcher interference on Caper Ruiz. But Gray then got back-to-back swinging strikeouts of Avisayo Garcia and John Birdie on a combined eight pitches. So you take a step back with Josiah Gray now. He had that wretched outing in the game against the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on May 24th, seven runs in three innings. But since then, three good starts here. 6-5 win over Colorado at Nats Park on May 29th, one run in five innings. 8-5 win at Cincinnati last Friday night, two runs, one earned, six innings, nine strikeouts. And now what he did on Wednesday night, you know, he's not necessarily great in all these starts, but he's been better. You know, this idea of like, he's going to fall off like he did last year. We're not seeing that. He's bounced back nicely from that Dodgers outing. And with the exception of the fouled off balls on Wednesday night, Josiah Gray did a good job. Yeah, I think that's the only blemish, if you can really call it that. I mean, typically, if you see somebody throw that many pitches in five innings, you're saying, boy, he must have been all over the place. And he wasn't. Like you said, the strike percentage was really good. He got 15 swings and misses, all of them on his breaking balls, 11 on the slider, four on the curveball. The fact he was able to have them both working, I think is big because often we've seen one of those two be effective for him on a given night, but not always both of them. So that was big. I guess the thing to nitpick here is that his fastball, he didn't get any swings and misses on. And of the 21 foul balls, 13 of them came on the fastball. So he's throwing it over the plate. You know, he's not spraying it all over the place. And that's, you know, not leading to deep counts or anything like that. And certainly not any walks. But for whatever reason, it didn't have the kind of life on it that was inducing swings and misses. And so kind of like we talked about with Rainey, you can help yourself out a lot by getting strikeouts as opposed to hoping for weak contact. Now, in this case, it was just contact to keep at bats alive, driving up the pitch count. You know, these are minor things, and I don't think it's really fair to make that too big a deal out of it with a young guy like this. Remember, it used to happen to Max Scherzer as well, uh, a guy who would get a lot of foul balls off him and drive his pitch count up. There's only so much you can do about that. But bigger picture here, I mean, it's hard not to like what you saw from him and what we have seen here for a little while now. He is, you know, we had that point a couple of weeks ago. We said Eric Fetty is their best starter. Well, we're going back to Josiah Gray now, at least until we see how Strasburg looks on Thursday. You know, Gray is part of the future here and we're seeing more good than bad. Yes, you'd love to see it all come together in one just dominant start one of these days. But for now, I think this is perfectly fine. And you're going toe to toe with arguably the best pitcher in the National League right now, Sandy Alcantara, and you're putting up zeros opposite him. That to me is a big win in my book. 
Yeah, I mean, you had a classic pitcher's duel for a good chunk of this game on Wednesday night with uh, each pitcher putting up zeros as Gray and Alcantara did. So that outing against the Dodgers ballooned Gray's ERA for the season to 544. He now has the ERA down to 433 on the season, and his strikeouts per nine innings is at 996. He's averaging 10 strikeouts per nine innings this season. So a really good number right there for Gray. Well, you mentioned Sandy Alcantara. Davey Martinez during his postgame session with you guys essentially said that Sandy Alcantara is the best starting pitcher in the National League, and the numbers uh, certainly bear that out. Alcantara is He's the best in our league, I think. I really do. I mean, he's got good stuff. Um, he was tough all night long. He kept us all balanced. First of all, Alcantara has just owned the Nats this season. He's faced them multiple times. The Nats have done nothing against him over those games. Alcantara on Wednesday night, nine shutout innings. Uh, he had six strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just six hits. How about this, though, with Alcantara? We just talked about uh, what Josiah Gray did from a strikes versus balls ratio on Wednesday night. Alcantara on Wednesday night, 105 pitches, 84 strikes versus 21 balls, a strikes to balls ratio of four to one. I mean, a strikes to balls ratio of two to one is good. Alcantara's was four to one on Wednesday night. He, this season now, over 12 starts, has an ERA of 161 and a whip of 0.94. So look, the Nats offense has not been good enough this season. We've talked about that a bunch. But geez, on Wednesday night, they were facing a guy who right now might be the best pitcher on the planet. Sometimes we roll our eyes when a team says, oh, you just got to tip your cap to the opposing starter. No, tonight, tip your cap to Sandy Alcantara. I agree. Right now, he is the best pitcher in the National League. We'll see if he can keep it up. But he's been kind of quietly emerging the last few years as a legitimate ace. And the strike count, incredible. And it's not like he was getting them to chase a bunch of pitches. Um, You look at his plot of pitches that he threw on the night, everything is right there in the zone. There's a few that are, are outside the zone. He at one point, three innings in, I don't think I've ever seen this before. Three innings in, he's got 33 pitches, 30 of them strikes. That's 10 to one strike to ball ratio. Insane. The Nats were, you know, understanding how good he was and trying to be aggressive. And so they were making quick outs, but I can't fault them for that approach. This guy is just tremendous right now, getting better and better. He's doing against whoever he faces. It's not just happening against the Nationals. And again, I think that makes the end result of this sting a little bit more because you actually matched him essentially pitch for pitch over the course of nine innings. And we're in a position to win a game in which the opposing starter threw nine scoreless innings and you still have a chance to win. And then they couldn't pull it off. So I think that on top of everything just kind of makes it sting a little bit more. Ocantra is an interesting guy because he's another one of these guys who initially was maybe good, but he wasn't this good. And then now all of a sudden he's really blossomed. I feel like we're seeing this more and more in baseball where the great pitchers don't start off great. They're not bad necessarily, but like they become great once they've been around for a few years. Jacob deGrom did the same thing. He wasn't Jacob deGrom initially. Like Matt Harvey and Noah Syndergaard were considered superior to deGrom. And then it's over the last few years that deGrom has just blown up. So you do see this with pitchers. And so, yeah, I try to remember that with someone, you know, maybe like with a Josiah Gray, who is at a certain level right now, but maybe two years from now, we see him ascend to an entirely new level. We got kind of spoiled with someone like Strasburg, who was great immediately, you know? Even like someone, you know, like you signed Max Scherzer, right? He was great right away. But with a guy like Gray, who's younger, 
maybe this is just how it is for some pitchers, and it seems to be the case for a good number of good pitchers. You're not great from the get-go. You're maybe good, and then you take off, say, in year three, year four, something like that. Go back to Jordan Zimmerman a decade ago. It was the same thing. He got hit around a little bit his first year. Then he had Tommy John surgery. Then he came back, and it really wasn't until about 2012 and 13 that he blossomed into the bulldog that he became. So, yeah, it's not uncommon. And what you see in the Marlins case with Alcantara, they're a team that can afford to let him go out there, even when the team isn't playing so great, let him make his starts and learn on the job how to do it. That's what the Nationals are doing with Josiah Gray right now. It's what they tried to do with Yoan Adon. They sent him down, but we'll be seeing him again here at some point. And keep this all in mind when Cade Cavalli comes up, whenever that is, theoretically sometime fairly soon, I think. Even if the initial results aren't blow you away, dominant ace kind of stuff, that's okay. If you're seeing glimpses of who he can be, ride it out. Let him learn and understand this could take a couple of years before you truly blossom because we've seen it across the league. And I agree. So much of what happened here in DC from about 2010 to 2015, 16 is they just had these guys burst onto the scene and play at a caliber you just don't usually see from rookies, both as pitchers and offensively. They hit the jackpot with so many of them. That's not usually the case. Don't be quick to give up on a guy. If you see glimpses of what he can be, give him a little bit of time to grow into it. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm, and big league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit bigtrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. Scott Deals. Swinging a looper, shallow right. This is going to fall in for a hit. Garcia's rounding third, headed home. The throw by De La Cruz is cut off. Nationals take the lead on a K-Bear Ruiz RBI single in the 10th. The first run of the ball game, Nationals won, Marlins nothing. So you had with the Nats a lot of guys struggling offensively on Wednesday night. Nelson Cruz 0 for 4, two strikeouts. Luis Garcia 0 for 4. Lane Thomas 0 for 4, three strikeouts. Uh, Victor Robles 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Cesar Hernandez 0 for 5 with a strikeout. Three Nats did have two hits apiece. Kbert Ruiz, Josh Bell, and A. Ray Adrianza. Kbert Ruiz on Wednesday night. So two for four with an RBI single and another single. He had that leadoff RBI single to shallow right center on a 1-2 pitch to score the automatic runner who was Luis Garcia for a 1-0 Nats lead in the top of the 10th. We also, from Kbert Ruiz uh, on Wednesday night, had him in the bottom of the fifth inning throwing out Jazz Chisholm Jr. on an attempted steal of second base for the first out. Kbert Ruiz now this season is 11 of 30 on runners trying to steal. I know we've talked about this, but boy, he continues to do a really good job throwing out runners trying to steal. I know that that's not the only measure of defensive prowess for a catcher, but boy, that's an important one. And um, he is doing a really good job. And with Chisholm, you know, that's like impressive, right? Chisholm is one of the more dynamic players in the National League right now. And he got gunned down by Caber Ruiz on Wednesday night. That was a big moment in, again, what kind of felt if the stakes were a little bit different, like a really good, compelling ball game. That was one of the highlights of it. And you could see the emotion from Ruiz, Josiah Gray, as they uh, got him out on that. Let's also remember, he's got those numbers despite his pitching staff not always putting him in the best position. (laughs) 
to get uh, guys out. And I think to Finnegan in the ninth gave up a stolen base to uh, John Birdie that Ruiz made a really good throw and almost had him. And Birdie stole that one off Finnegan, not off of uh, Ruiz. So those numbers, I think you qualified a little bit. They could even be arguably better than that if his pitchers were helping him out a little bit. It's hard not to be impressed with him. Yeah, there are plenty of things he can still work on. And obviously in this game, he ends up costing them, I suppose, by blocking the plate, even if we didn't all realize that he was doing it. There was a catcher's interference. Uh, you know, I think game calling, like we've discussed, is still a growing process for him and for Riley Adams, but he's a rookie. Let's not judge too much here. Let's give him some time. I think there's been way more good than bad and a lot of reasons to believe that Cabert Ruiz in the long run is going to be truly an important part of this team for a long time as their starting catcher and, you know, arguably one of the better ones in the league. Yeah, so he's 11 of 31 now on the season on runners trying to steal. Uh, Josh Bell, two for four with a couple of singles in that aforementioned big defensive play uh, in the ninth inning. And Ari Adrianza, starting third baseman. So he gives Michael Franco a night off. We've seen Franco play a lot this year. Uh, we've seen Cesar Hernandez play a lot this year. Cesar has really cooled off. Perhaps he could use a day off. But Adrianza on uh, Wednesday night, uh, two for four with two singles. I want to mention Juan Soto just because it feels like we don't talk about him that much these days. He's really not doing much in these games. What he seems to be in the midst of is a stretch now where like one every four or five games, he'll have a big game. We'll hit a homer and a double or something like that. And we'll go out and just get Juan Soto going. And then what happens is the next three to five games, he's right back to doing very little. And, you know, he usually gets on base once a game. But there's just not a lot there right now. You know, for a guy who's a superstar and who can be such an impact player, he doesn't seem to be impacting games all that much. I mean, even with what he did on Wednesday night. So we had a double on Wednesday night. Well, the double came because Jorge Soler, the Marlins left fielder, misplayed what was, I thought, a pretty catchable high fly ball. Now, it was a deep fly ball made its way to the left field warning track. But like, that's what Soto did on Wednesday night. And, you know, in a game like this, again, does it matter that the Nats lost? No, but 2-1 game, you could have used a big night from Juan Soto or a big hit from Juan Soto. And he just does not, he, he seems to be just another guy right now. And we know that he's not just another guy, but that's how he's playing for the most part these days. Yeah, it feels like the production, aside from maybe one of those games last weekend in Cincinnati, it feels like the production hasn't been very meaningful or in very meaningful moments for him. We, you know, scoff at the RBI total, but it's pretty telling the fact that he's not driving in runs and it's not like he hasn't been coming up in situations where he could make a difference. He has, and he hasn't been able to get the job done in a lot of those spots. So yeah, I agree. It's been a weird season for him. It doesn't leave me like tremendously worried about him, but it's also a little bit discouraging because there are games like this one where all it takes is one big swing from Juan Soto and they win the game. Yes, he's facing an elite pitcher, but he's an elite hitter. Every once in a while, you'd like to think he could connect off someone like Alcantara and maybe help them win a game one nothing instead of leaving them to where they were, you know, to lose an extra innings. We've also talked about, you know, on the bases in the field, maybe hasn't been real clean. I'm curious your thought on this, the decision for him to throw to the plate on that blue single. I think it was the right call because it's the tying run and he almost had him out. And I thought it was a pretty good throw. It did ultimately allow Astudio to take second and put him in position then to score the winning run. You know, I don't know if that's a real clear cut decision one way or the other. I don't have a big problem 
with it, but it does feel like yet another case of a, a little thing that didn't quite go right that maybe they could have done a little bit differently that might have helped them in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't kill him for it. And if he gets the guy out, then, you know, we're all praising him. But that is another almost like lost opportunity for a big time impact play that he didn't make. Not an easy thing to do. Okay, a lot of guys aren't going to make that throw to get the guy out. But it's like, there's another opportunity to impact the game in a big way. And, you know, he was unable to do it in that spot. You know, it just, he's come off like just a, a normal player this year. And I guess that's the thing. We have this standard for him and we should He's not normal. He's abnormal in a good way. You know, he's like, he's not mortal. He's immortal. And uh, he, he's not coming through like that so far this season. Will that change? I tend to think yes. But, you know, we are now more than a third of the way into the season. Like, the season is, is ongoing here. You know, we're into June. And uh, if you look at the ad schedule, the All-Star break isn't that far away. Like, the season is moving along. And so at some point, you say, all right, uh, time to get going here. And uh, we'll see. I mean, I think that he will. But uh, it's not happening here right now. And he's been in this rut, if you want to call it that, for about a month, maybe a month plus at this point. I have to look at the calendar. But like, this isn't new anymore. This has been going on for the bulk of his season by this point. So something that we talked about on the last installment of the Nats Chat podcast did come to fruition on Wednesday during the day. The Nats optioned Yoan Adone to AAA Rochester and recalled lefty reliever Sam Clay. Uh, nobody is stunned by this with a dome, but it's telling that uh, this is what happened because, you know, we weren't sure if this would happen. So when it comes to the Nats rotation now, and, you know, the Nats are in another one of these stretches here. You don't have an off day coming up anytime soon. You have this double header that's going to be coming up in a little bit against Philadelphia. So I guess Evan Lee is in the Nats rotation for now. But what are we looking at in terms of this Nats rotation over these next few weeks here? Again, without the off day and with this doubleheader not that far away. So Lee isn't officially in the rotation yet. Davey said that they were still kind of considering how they want to approach this. They have a few days. You know, with Strasburg coming back, he takes a spot and then they won't need it until later in the week after they get back home. I think it might not even be until Sunday against the Brewers that they need a fifth starter. So you know, it's possible if the right situation arose, they could use Lee again um, out of the bullpen. But I thought it was a little bit telling that the guy they chose to call up was Sam Clay because that's a lefty. And if you now have a lefty in the bullpen, you don't feel compelled to leave Evan Lee there. My guess is he will get another start here at some point. I think they're also considering Paolo Espino. Hey, how about that for a start at some point along the way, whether it's in that doubleheader or sometime before then. So this may be a little bit of a work in progress, and this may not be a, uh, okay, we've got our five starters set in stone and we're just sticking with that. It may be a little bit of mixing and matching to get through this stretch before they finalize some things. I don't think it's going to happen yet, but keep an eye on Cavalli, who has done so well at AAA, and I think we're getting closer to the day that he uh, could get his call up. Maybe somewhere before this long stretch is over, he ends up in the picture as well. So I think at least as of pregame on Wednesday, they were still trying to figure all that stuff out. And, um, you know, it may be a couple of days until they do. But the, the logic here would say that Evan Lee probably gets a start this weekend against the Brewers. And then maybe Paolo Espino also gets a start as we approach that doubleheader next week. I would think too, until you see Steven Strasburg pitch, you need to have a firm idea of like, okay, is he with us or where are we with him? And like, I, I would think, I mean, I brought this up on the last show, but 
I think you got to have Paolo ready to go on Thursday night with Strasburg pitching because you don't know what's going to happen here with him. So you almost need like a tandem starter ready just in case something goes awry with Strasburg. So I think if he pitches, say, five innings, whatever it may be on Thursday evening, then you say, all right, he's with us, you know, for to whatever extent you can be certain that he's with you. And then you can kind of move forward there. But yeah, there there seems to be a lot to be determined right now with the Nats uh, rotation. So yeah, so Steven Strasburg on Thursday night, 640 start, game three at the Marlins. Nats will try to avoid the three-game sweep. I know that Davia said there are no limitations on Strasburg. Probably there are at least some. What do you think? Do you think he's going to uh, do well? Do you think this is going to be a quick outing? I mean, predict the final line. We can we can do that right here. What do you think the final line for Steven Strasburg on Thursday evening will be? So 12 years ago, when I was asked this question, prior to his major league debut, I tried to set the bar low, like I said. And I said, well, maybe, you know, five and a third, three runs, maybe he'll strike out six or seven. And then, of course, we know what he did. I'm going to set the bar low again, just to be safe with it. I do think it's a favorable matchup against the Marlins. As we saw, they struggled to score runs, not in the series opener, but they did in this game. I think it's a good place for him to make his return. Uh, Maybe not the stakes quite as high as if it was at home against the Brewers or the Braves who are coming up next. So I do like that. But I do also think they're going to be careful with him. He can say there's no restrictions, but they're going to be watching him closely. They're not going to take any chances here with that. So I will say five innings, two runs, and um, I'll give him five strikeouts. I'll say a strikeout per inning. My hunch is is that we're going to come out of this and say we were impressed with the curveball and the changeup, maybe not as much with the fastball, which I think what they're sort of expecting at this point. But, you know, that'll be my prediction. And then and a pitch count, I'd say around 75 to 80. And maybe they decide that that's enough for this first time out. All right. I'll give him six innings. I'll, I'll be bullish on this, especially with who he's facing. Although if you ask Johan Adon, he's Strasburg isn't facing a bad team. But yeah, I'll say six innings, three runs, five strikeouts. I mean, I think it's going to be solid. You know, there's that potential, of course, for this to really be bad. I don't think we're going to see that. I, I think, at least, especially for this first outing, you know, he did well enough over those final two minor league rehab assignment starts to where, like, it's not like this is a total unknown. Like, we've seen him pitch reasonably well, albeit against minor league competition in recent weeks. And you got to think, too, I mean, he's going to be motivated. I know it's probably hard to get the adrenaline pumping in front of 7,000 and change at Lone Depot Park, but. This is a big deal. His first start in more than 12 months in a major league game. So you would think that he's really going to be fired up for this. I think he is. And I think the team really is. This is what I gathered the last couple of days. Within that clubhouse, we got to remember, there's a lot of young guys, guys who haven't been here very long. Some of them have never seen him pitch in person before. Josiah Gray was talking about that. By the time Josiah was acquired last summer, uh, Strasburg had already been shut down. They had decided to give him the surgery. He's really excited. Josiah was in middle school when Steven made his major league debut in 2010. Can you imagine that? And he's not alone. That's what all these guys, the the catchers are young guys. Whoever's catching him on Thursday, whether it's Ruiz or Adams, it's going to be a big deal for them. Sam Clay, who was in Rochester when Strasburg made his rehab start last week, he said it was electric in the ballpark. He hadn't really been able to see Steven like that. And he was soaking it in. All of them were soaking it in. This is an unusual thing. The team that Strasburg was pitching for a year ago on June 1st was a team full of veterans that was still trying to win. 
The team he's going to have behind him on Thursday night is totally different. And for a lot of these young guys, they actually grew up watching him. They're as excited to see him pitch as the fans are because they have never seen it in person before. They think he's going to make a big difference for them. Whether that means anything in the standings, I don't know. But the pitchers on the staff especially, they think he's going to show them a lot about how to be a successful big league pitcher. There is a lot of excitement in that clubhouse for this. Well, if he can even just rub off on a Josiah Gray, then there's certainly value in that. It's tricky with Strasburg because in terms of like his age, he's not that old numerically. This is his age 33 season. There are plenty of pitchers in baseball older than him, but he debuted so young, right? His debut was 12 years ago that, yeah, that's a decade plus. Like that is a long time ago. And so if you are in your early or mid-20s, you were in middle school or in junior high or just starting high school on June 8th, 2010, when he made his major league debut. So yeah, time flies. We're all getting older, not younger. We were not in middle school when he made his debut. We were working. No, we were. We were working. Yes, we were. We probably had the brains of people in middle school, but that, that may still be the case too. I don't, I don't know. You tell us what you think. What do you think is going to happen with Strasburg on Thursday evening? Let us know on Twitter. You can hit us up at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Big show coming out on Friday morning off the 2022 Major League debut of Steven Strasburg. We'll see what goes down. Until then, for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Now the pitch. Fastball hit on the ground off the glove of Strasburg. Cabrera charges in. Bearhands throws the first. He's out. He's out. One away here in the bottom of the ninth inning. What a reaction by Cabrera to come in barehanded with the great hands and footwork to throw him out. That was going to be a really easy play if Strasburg didn't touch the ball. That made it a far more difficult play having to redirect. And the key was the barehand pickup. And once he did, he was fine. Chip Hale is coming out. He's taking the ball. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.